For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Russian scientists from the Soil Cryology Laboratory at the Pushchino Center for Biological Research recently pulled an animal out of the Siberian permafrost that was still alive after 24,000 years. For those of you not in the know, soil cryology is the study of very cold dirt, and permafrost is any patch of ground that stays completely frozen for more than two years straight. So Siberia is a good place to study sub-zero soil and the things that come out of it when it starts to thaw. Now, before you get excited about a blind woolly mammoth staggering around like Han Solo after being thawed out of carbonite, what came out of the permafrost was a much, much smaller animal, the deloid rotifer. Rotifers are microscopic filter feeders that you can find in almost every body of water on Earth, from the Pacific Ocean down to your backyard birdbath. This particular species is the deloid rotifer. You're only hearing me say deloid, but that name is spelled B-D-E-L-L-O-I-D from the ancient Greek word for leech, which is what these guys are shaped like. Or I should say what these gals are shaped like. There are actually no males of the species. Deloid rotifers reproduce through parthenogenesis, which means that each individual female gives birth to a female offspring without being fertilized by another rotifer. Asexual reproduction like this has its evolutionary advantages. You don't have to go to the trouble of finding a mate, but it leads to a lack of genetic diversity that makes it very difficult for an animal to adapt to new threats. So, species that evolve into parthenogenesis often go extinct before very long. But deloid rotifers have been around for at least 40 million years, 
and have at least 450 distinct subspecies, which means they have been able to adapt to almost every kind of environment you can think of. Scientists think this is partially because deloid rotifers have developed something called horizontal gene transfer, which is the ability to incorporate the genetic material of the other life forms you consume. Let me pause here to emphasize how frickin' cool this is. Scientists have analyzed the DNA of rotifers and determined that at least 10% of their genes come from the bacteria, algae, and plants that they eat. This genetic diversity allows them to adapt when something in their environment changes that could have potentially wiped them out. Brings new meaning to you are what you eat, right? This would be like you and me eating salmon and our kids developing gills. Then the neighborhood floods and those kids being able to breathe underwater live while those that don't have gills, well, you know, you get it. The genetic wizardry is also how individual rotifers like our friend from the Siberian permafrost can survive so well after almost 25 millennia. If you dry a rotifer out completely or freeze her solid or shoot ionizing radiation at her, her cells will suffer a certain amount of damage, and for most animals that would be the end. But in a process the scientists don't fully understand, rotifers are able to repair their damage, even down to the level of individual strands of DNA that have been broken apart by radioactivity. So, when the Russian rotifer was warmed up in the lab and given some calories and fresh water, she perked right back up and even gave birth to several more rotifers. I found this story amazing, which is why I wanted to share it with you and possibly exposing as a source of inspiration for all of those Marvel comic book and sci-fi writers out there. This week, we've got tarpon, wild horses, and trail cameras. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And this week, I am back to looking like an absolute jackass on the front of a flats boat looking for tarpon. I say I look like a jackass because it dawned on me that to get good at tarpon fishing, it requires a lot of time on the water. And I essentially just show up and hope the stars align and I'll catch one more out of luck than skill. Tarpon I have talked about many times. They are an incredibly cool fish, a species much celebrated and oddly much maligned. Tarpon inhabit both coasts of the Atlantic. They even swim through the Panama Canal and enjoy a small portion of the Pacific. Tarpon are a living fossil, having swum almost unchanged for some 18 million years. They are obligate air breathers, meaning they have to occasionally sip air from the surface. They have a highly vascular swim bladder, which can absorb oxygen from the air it holds. This is, in fact, the primary survival strategy of the baby tarpon that end up in very warm, stagnant coastal waters. They can survive there amongst the swamp and mangrove in waters depleted of oxygen where many of their potential predators cannot. Right now, folks pay a lot of attention to this fish for its incredibly fun recreational fighting ability. They call it the Silver King. They form lives and businesses around chasing them, understanding them, and catching and releasing them. Tarpon were in U.S. waters and are still in certain other areas of the world thought of as a fish that occupied too much biomass. They're big and they're tough to eat, and they eat a lot of other fish that people like to eat. So wouldn't it be good to clear that biomass out and replace it with something easier for folks to eat? and easier for folks to land, and easier for folks to put in a net. So, through gill netting, 
even dynamite and poison in some areas, these fish were rounded up and used as fertilizer. Their scales used for jewelry or nail files or guitar picks even, and there was an attempt to get them out of the way so other fish could be brought in. The tarpon is currently listed internationally as threatened by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. One of the things that has landed tarpon in a safe place is the fact that the recreational tarpon fishery here in the U.S. is worth roughly $6 billion. Dubbed, again, the Silver King, they are charismatic. They're incredibly strong, full of energy, high endurance. They're big jumpers. They're very photogenic. These fish are sought after, and they put on a show for fly anglers. They'll eat smallish flies, and they happen to look up towards the surface, making fly presentations pretty darned effective. These are bucket list type creatures for folks with a hankering to travel with their fly poles and fish rods. Never mind the fact that the incredibly hard-to-catch, elusive, and picky fish you just chased all day is the exact same fish that has congregated at certain marinas and dock lights to eat just about any food scraps or virtually any old bait tossed off the sides of the commercial fishing boats within easy reach of any interested child. The largest recorded tarpon was over 8 feet long and 355 pounds. The world record all-tackle tarpon is a 286-pound, 9-ounce fish caught on 80-pound line out of Guinea-Bissau, and the fly line world record is a 202-pound, 8-ounce tarpon caught on 20-pound line. They get big. In fact, a potential new all-tackle world record out of Columbia of 312 pounds just hit the social media feed this week. This particular trip I am on, the weather has been crap, but I broke off a really big tarpon on a bad hook the first day. My friend Brian landed a fish in the 70-ish pound range. He hooked, fought, and landed and released that fish in under 10 minutes. The next day, more frustrating conditions, but we eventually got our gap in the weather and we were able to find fish. I hooked up first and broke one off. He wore through the heavy bite tippet, which was a bummer in a way, but also in a way it was a good thing. I was a little sloppy, didn't exactly have myself dialed. I couldn't quite get into play all the advice I'd been given. That fish broke off somewhere around the 18 or 19 minute mark. It should have been boat side before then. After that, Brian jumped up and hooked a fish in short order. He got a couple of great jumps out of it right next to the boat. Sun shining, water all exploding around it. It was beautiful but a loop of his fly line caught on the handle of the reel and the leader snapped, all over in maybe 20 seconds. After that, we retied, found more fish. This time, the sun was out and we could see the tarpon coming from a long way away. I finally made a nice cast. I had plenty of time. I put the fly in front, but not too far, and slowly moved it ahead of his nose. There's a big eat. A turn and a jerk of the line. With my slack hand, I buried the hook in the fish's mouth. He made a couple of big long runs. I applied heavy drag. We chased him with the boat. And in very short order, sub 10 minutes, we had another tarpon next to the boat. This felt great, not just because I landed the fish, but more so because I am a rookie and it is really fun to put the skills being thrown at you by experienced anglers to work. Learning is fun, you know. Even though this type of sport fishing is catch and release versus catch and kill, there is always a chance that the act of fighting and exhausting a fish in order to get it to the boat will be enough to kill it. 
and dead is dead even if you don't see it happen. Catch and release mortality is a thing, and anglers need to do what they can to mitigate it. If you are in low oxygen water and the fight goes too long, if you feel like you're messing it up, you can always choose to just snap the line and proceed on with your day. Sometimes that means being rigged up for this. Having a stretch of lighter mono in between the thick bite mono that connects the fly to the leader in trout waters, unless you're strictly fishing to keep fish, don't fish for trout in water temps over 67 degrees, which are typically low oxygen waters, a stressful environment for those fish. That 67 degree mark is a temperature range we're already getting into in some waters back in my home state of Montana. It is always a good idea to not bring a fish in the boat or over the boat if you intend to release it. If they land on or in the boat, they can quickly beat themselves up beyond reasonable recovery before you can get them under control enough to get them back in the water. Handle a fish with your hands as little as possible. That fish slime is there to protect them. A recent study titled Migrations and Movements of Atlantic Tarpon Revealed by Two Decades of Satellite Tagging was published in the January 2020 issue of the journal Fish and Fisheries. This study is based on an 18-year data set following 300 adult tarpon outfitted with GPS tags. According to this study, Atlantic tarpon are now threatened throughout their range by recreational fishing release mortality directed commercial harvests, intensive harvesting of key prey species, and habitat degradation. Which is extremely interesting that catch-and-release mortality made the list of threats amongst commercial harvest, habitat loss, and loss of the food species that tarpon eat. I have some thoughts as to why, and they revolve around the fact that the 300 tagged fish came out of almost strictly recreational fisheries. The fish I landed fast, I did choose to handle. I got out of the boat. My guide and friend, Jerome Brewer, had the tarpon by the lip. I grabbed his tail. We quickly lifted him mostly from the water for a photo while thigh deep and then released him. It was all in all maybe a three-second maneuver. You never know what will happen when you release a fish. They go off into the ocean or river or lake and who knows what happens. You just have to use your best judgment. In this case, I am very confident that this fish had lots of fight left and was as fine as the previous fish we released from the boat. But what was the point? A picture? A lasting memory? Yes, of course. But the side benefit was, I really got to feel how heavy, thick, and powerful this fish was. I got to realize the potential of how powerful this fish could be in the future. By grabbing its tail, mostly getting my hand around it, and feeling its heft, I appreciate the tarpon more. A lot more, if I'm being honest. Do I need to get in the water with one every time, provided there is another time? No, I'd rather get back in action and try to get another tarpon to eat. But if there isn't another time in my future, I'll be glad I held that fish for it has increased my understanding of the fish. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL 
to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the Wild Horses desk. You remember that Stone song? Wild Horses. Anyway, the nonprofit group Friends of Animals recently filed suit against the Bureau of Land Management over the BLM's Feral Horse Adoption Program. The federal government currently houses almost 50,000 feral horses on the taxpayer's dime. In a, quote, humane attempt to manage this population, the BLM developed a program offering $1,000 to anyone willing to take one of these horses home. You won't be surprised to hear that animal rights groups have a bone or two to pick with the program. Side note, my uncle Mike Walton went over to Miles City, Montana, home of the Cowboys and home of the annual bucking horse sale and where he cashed in on this thousand bucks by buying a feral mare who was pregnant or bred. And those two have lived on his dime well beyond the thousand dollar payment he received for over 20 years. If you own horses, you know what I'm talking about. They're expensive. To those two wild horses, Bianca and Bernard, I say, if you're listening, you won the horsey lottery. Anyway, you're hearing me say feral horse instead of wild horse because none of the animals in question are actually native to the U.S. The horse did in fact originate in North America and the species spread west across the Bering Land Bridge and into Eurasia. But the original North American population went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene about 11,000 years ago. 
Horses didn't reappear in North America until Europeans introduced them here, which is a cool, around-the-globe migration, but it still makes modern-day non-domesticated horses in the U.S. quote, feral, and you could say, invasive. Because non-domesticated horses are absolutely punishing the habitat in which they roam and reproduce. Since the 1970s, populations have steadily grown, and in many places their numbers are way, way over the carrying capacity of the land. For example, one especially famous herd in the Onaki Mountains of Utah, you can beat me up on that, right into A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askal at themeateater.com, or Onakai Mountains, eh, anyway. That mountain range has an appropriate management level of at most 210 animals. But the Onakai herd is now at least double that size. Statewide in Nevada, the appropriate management level is 12,800 animals, but the current population is estimated to be more than 34,000. You can predict what happens next. Native vegetation gets eaten to the ground and has no chance to regrow. Native animals have less and less to eat, and even the horse population itself begins to starve. With all the edible vegetation gone, non-native, inedible plants like cheatgrass have no competition and spread like crazy. Once cheatgrass gets established, it leads to more frequent brush fires, which further damages native shrubs and allows even more cheatgrass to spread. We could talk about the soil effects for days. All this means that the BLM goes to great lengths to control feral horse numbers, and they don't have a lot of great tools at their disposal. For instance, you cannot hunt feral horses. Historically speaking, it's weird that you can't hunt horses. Remember that Pleistocene population in North America I mentioned? Those Pleistocene horses were a staple of the human diet. In prehistoric Europe, horses and reindeer were the main prey animals of Homo sapiens for thousands of years. I'm going to stop here. I know I'm not going to convince the American public to allow horse hunting. I'm taking my life in my hands even talking about it. The term crazy horse people exists for a reason. But we do need to do something, and the BLM adoption program, take a horse and get $1,000, seemed like a decent idea. But the Friends of Animals lawsuit argues that the BLM isn't doing enough to prevent adopters from eventually selling the horses to slaughterhouses in Canada and Mexico. The BLM does have guidelines in place to try to make sure no one's gathering all the horses up and shipping them to the dog food factory. No individual can adopt more than four animals a year, and you only get the $1,000 after having the horses in your possession for 120 days. But, past that, the BLM can only do so much tracking and enforcement, and the lawsuit says they should do more. There are several happy endings with the adoption system. One feral Mustang has become a dressage champion, which is a life very much not wild, but it seems that to many folks, a life of being a champion dressage horse is better than being, let's say, a champion sausage horse. But what else can we do? We can't hunt them, we can't turn them into kibble, and the option of sterilization is an expensive one and does nothing to address the issue of overgrazing and land degradation. To give you an idea of what sterilization looks like, a New Mexico-based company called Wildlife Protection Management developed a feeder that delivers contraceptives to horses. To get to alfalfa in a bin, the horses have to fit their heads into a chute, sensors on the chute determine which horse is at the feeder, and if that horse needs another dose of birth control. A small dart shoots out of a refrigerated box onto one side, 
The horses seem startled, but not hurt. The units are powered by solar panels, and they're getting cheaper as facial recognition is replacing RFID tags to tell which horse is which. Early trials seem to show that the units could be effective. Just keep in mind that the BLM doesn't have enough money to effectively round the horses up to give them away, so how are you going to pay for satellite tags, solar power, facial recognition, refrigerated, contraceptive, dart-shooting, alfalfa bins? Anyway, horse advocates say we should let them expand their range and limit the domestic livestock that grazes the same land, which is an interesting perspective as livestock are regulated And, let's be honest, so are the other grazing animals, elk, deer, and pronghorn, three animals that you could argue have a much greater claim on the land than the feral horses. Moving on. The Arizona Fish and Game Commission recently voted unanimously to ban the use of trail cameras across the state for, quote, the purpose of taking or aiding in the take of wildlife, meaning anywhere in the state, public land or private property all year round, even for preseason scouting, you can't use trail cams to hunt. The decision here comes down almost entirely to water, or rather, the scarcity of it. Arizona is in the middle of a historic 20-year drought, which means that as smaller water sources have dried up, wild game and many other animals have come to depend more and more on big water catchments, almost all of which are on public land and on everyone's map. And so, more and more cameras have gone up around these water sources. When people come to check their cameras, they disrupt the potentially stressed wildlife and occasionally bump into each other in unfriendly ways. The drought also plays into fair chase. Game and Fish Commission Chair Kurt Davis made the argument that in a state with plenty of places for animals to drink, the ethics of trail camera use are completely different. Davis said, quote, If I live in Minnesota or Alabama, I wouldn't even be having this discussion. But in an arid state with highly limited water sources, do cameras really allow an elk or a deer a fair chance of escaping detection? I was interested to see that the ban applies on both public and private land. On one hand, the ruling doesn't unfairly hold the public land hunter to a different standard than the landowner or the hunter who has access to private land but it's hard to see how the enforcement of this rule is going to work on private land. No one can ban the use of cameras to, say, track the cattle on your property, or to keep an eye out for trespassers, or see if that cactus wren has laid eggs in her nest. And if, while you're looking at those images, you happen to see a few bucks scraping their antlers on a nearby tree trunk, well, I mean, come on. Enforcement might be hard on public land, too. Cameras can be well hidden, they don't give away the owner's identity, and they're pretty cheap to replace if they get taken down. Public opinion came out strongly against the ban of trail cameras. In the two comment periods, the nays had the wide majority of emails, letters, and testimony. Many commentators said that they hadn't experienced any shootouts with other trail cam users and that their feelings hadn't been permanently hurt by online feuds but the commission still did what commissions do. They make decisions based on all available evidence and take into consideration the public opinion. Despite the unpopular outcome, this is a much better path than if the state legislature had passed a law on the matter, or if a measure had been decided by ballot initiative. This one can be changed in comparison to the latter easily. 
It'll be interesting to see how the trail cam ruling ages and whether people will eventually come around. It makes me think of the controversy when a lot of cities and towns started banning smoking in restaurants and bars. Both bar owners and patrons came out against the smoking bans, worrying that it was going to kill nightlife, but instead, those bans led to more people going out, staff who were happier at work because they didn't have to breathe secondhand smoke, and a decline in cancer rates. In retrospect, the smoking bans became extremely popular. We'll see if that happens here. I will say, trail cams can be a simply fantastic way to get new hunters out into the woods. Hunting can have a hard time competing with sports and video games and other high-stimulation pastimes. A lot of days, you go out and see exactly zero animals while hiking. Having photos of those animals, along with the times they were there, can be an awfully strong draw. Of course, the not knowing can be a strong draw, too. It certainly is for me. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, hunting season's coming up. You may want a fancy new, powerful, quiet, battery-powered steel chainsaw. If you're in the market, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable, awesome steel dealer near you. Look for that iconic orange sign. And most importantly, don't forget to let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.